0: podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I've got a really lovely story for you tonight by the one and only Nathaniel Hawthorne, a short story he wrote. Uh, That was a real joy to read, but before we get to the bedtime reading, I would like to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com which is a website you can go on and pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's wonderful patrons, Hinoa Tehua, Ellen M. Prendergast, Mitchell Huitema, Brandy Herman, Kennetha Evans, Koime, Meryl Young, and an extra special thank you to... Sienna Malika, um, I know you're having trouble sleeping right now, and uh, I just want to say thank you so much for listening, and it'll get better. It will. I'm manifesting a lot of good sleep energy for you, so thank you very much, Sienna. And thank you all so much for donating. It means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, um, these names that I just read, these names that I maybe butchered the pronunciation of, which I'm very, very sorry if I did. Um, these are all new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a website where you can support the creators who make the things that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, maybe it's become part of your nightly routine, then consider going on Patreon.com sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. That goes a really long way. At $5 a month, you get access to our big special poetry feed um, with episodes that are not on the regular show. And at $2 a month, you get access to the ad-free version of the show. But even if you donate a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, again, if you want to be a part of making this show, Go to Patreon.com Sleepy Radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. So tonight, um, I'm going back to, as many of you probably know, uh, one of my favorite authors to read on the show, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I'm going back to his excellent little collection called Twice Told Tales. And uh, this is a really, really good story to fall asleep to called The Seven Vagabonds. I think you're going to like it. Um, And kind of cool thing uh, for this story tonight is this episode was recorded in Spotify Studios over at uh, Gimlet downtown Brooklyn, um, they have invited me into this partner program because of you, you know, all of you listening to Sleepy, uh, we've caught Spotify's attention and um, we have for the last few years now and they have been offering their recording studios for Sleepy to record in, which is just so cool Um, and they're going to help kind of grow the show and uh, make sure We get more people, uh, get to find the show and and get a better night's rest from it, hopefully. So, yeah, tonight's recording will be from Spotify Studios. And, um, a lot of the recordings in the next couple months will be as well. So, I have you to thank for that. So, thank you. It's a really, really cool opportunity. Alright. That is enough of me yapping. Tonight... Without further ado, The Seven Vagabonds by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. The Seven Vagabonds. Rambling on foot in the spring of my life and the summer of the year, I came one afternoon to a point which gave me the choice of three directions. Straight before me, the main road extended its dusty length to Boston. On the left, a branch went toward the sea and would have lengthened my journey a trifle of twenty or thirty miles or well, by the right-hand path I might have gone over hills and lakes to Canada, visiting in my way the celebrated town of Stamford. On a level spot of grass, at the foot of the guidepost appeared an object which, though locomotive on a different principle, reminded me of Gulliver's portable mansion among the Brobdingnags. It was a huge covered wagon, or, more properly, a small house on wheels, with a door on one side and a window shaped by green blinds on the other. Two horses munching provender out of baskets which muzzled them were fastened near the vehicle. A delectable sound of music proceeded from the interior, and I immediately conjectured that this was some itinerant show, halting at the confluence of the roads, to intercept such idle travelers as myself. A shadow had long been climbing up the western sky, and now hung so blankly over my onward path that it was a point of wisdom to seek shelter here. Hallo! who stands guard there? Is the doorkeeper asleep, cried I, approaching a ladder of two or three steps which was let down from the wagon. The music ceased at my summons, and there appeared at the door not the sort of figure that I had mentally assigned to the wandering showman, but a most respectable old personage whom I was sorry to have addressed in so free a style. He wore a snuff-colored coat and small clothes with white top boots, and exhibited the mild dignity of aspect and manner which may often be noticed in aged schoolmasters and sometimes in deacons, selectmen, or other potentates of that kind. A small piece of silver was my passport within his premises, where I found only one other person hereafter to be described. This is a dull day for business, said the old gentleman as he ushered me in, but I merely tarry here to refresh the cattle, being bound for the camp meeting at Stamford. Perhaps the movable scene of this narrative is still peregrinating New England and may enable the reader to test the accuracy of my description. The spectacle, for I will not use my unworthy term of puppet show, consisted of a multitude of little people assembled on a miniature stage. Among them were artisans of every kind in the attitudes of their toil and a group of fair ladies and gay gentlemen standing ready for the dance. A company of foot soldiers formed a line across the stage, looking stern, grim, and terrible enough to make it a pleasant consideration that they were but three inches high. Inconspicuous above the whole was seen a merry Andrew in a pointed cap and motley coat of his profession. All the inhabitants of this mimic world were motionless, like the figures in a picture, or like that people who, one moment, were alive in the midst of their business and delights, and the next were transformed to statues, preserving an internal semblance of labor that was ended in pleasure that could be felt no more. Anon, however, the old gentleman turned the handle of a barrel organ, and the first note of which produced a most enlivening effect upon the figures and awoke them all to their proper occupations and amusements. By the self same impulse, the tailor plied his needle, the blacksmith's hammer descended upon the anvil, and the dancers whirled away on feathery tiptoes. The company of soldiers broke into platoons, retreated from the stage, and were succeeded by a troop of horse who came prancing onward with such a sound of trumpets and trampling of hooves as might have startled Don Quixote himself, while an old toper of inveterate ill habits uplifted his black bottle and took off a hearty sway. Meantime, the merry Andrew began to caper and turn somersets, shaking his sides, nodding his head and winking his eyes in as lifelike a manner, as if he were ridiculing the nonsense of all human affairs and making fun of the whole multitude beneath him. At length, the old magician, for I compared the showman to Prospero, entertaining his guests with a mask of shadows, paused that I might give utterance to my wonder. What an admirable piece of work this is, exclaimed I, lifting up my hands in astonishment. Indeed, I liked the spectacle and was tickled with the old man's gravity as he presided at it, for I had none of that foolish wisdom which reproves every occupation that is not useful in this world of vanities. If there be a faculty which I possess more perfectly than most men, it is that of throwing myself mentally into situations foreign to my own and detecting with a cheerful eye the desirable circumstances of each. I could have envied the life of this grey headed showman, spent as it had been in the course of safe and pleasurable adventure, in driving his huge vehicle sometimes through the sands of Cape Cod, and sometimes over the rough forest roads of the north and east, and halting now on the green before a village meeting house, and now in paved square of the metropolis. How often must his heart have been gladdened by the delight of children as they viewed these animated figures, or his pride indulged by her learnedly to grown men on the mechanical powers which produce such wonderful effects, or his gallantry brought into play? For this is an attribute which such grave men do not lack, by the visits of pretty maidens and then with how fresh a feeling must he return at intervals to his peculiar home. I would I were assured of as happy a life as is, thought I. Though the showman's wagon might have accommodated fifteen or twenty spectators, and now contained only himself and me, and a third person, at whom I threw a glance on entering. He was a neat and trim young man of two or three and twenty. His drab hat and green frock coat with velvet collar were smart, though no longer new, while a pair of green spectacles that seemed needless to his brisk little eyes gave him something of a scholar-like and literary air. After allowing me a sufficient time to inspect the puppets, he advanced with a bow and drew my attention to some books in a corner of the wagon. These he had forthwith began to extol with an amazing volubility of well-sounding words and an ingenuity of praise that won him my heart as being myself one of the most merciful of critics. Indeed, his stock required some considerable powers of commendation in the salesman. There were several ancient friends of mine, the novels of those happy days when my affections wavered between the Scottish chiefs and Thomas Thumb, besides a few of later day, whose merits had not been yet acknowledged by the public. I was glad to find the dear little venerable volume of New England primer looking as antique as ever, though in its thousandth new edition. A bundle of superannuated gilt picture books made such a child of me that, partly from the glittering covers and partly for the fairy tales within, I bought the whole, and an assortment of ballads and popular theatrical songs drew largely on my purse. To balance these expenditures, I meddled neither with sermons nor science nor morality. Though volumes of each were there, nor with the life of Franklin in the courses of paper, but so showily bound that it was emblematic of the doctor himself in the court dress which he refused to wear at Paris, nor with Webster's spelling book, nor some of Byron's minor poems, nor half a dozen little testaments at twenty-five cents each. Thus far, the collection might have been swept from some great bookstore or picked up at an evening auction room, there was one small blue covered pamphlet which the peddler handed me with so peculiar an air that I purchased it immediately at his own price. And then, for the first time, the thought struck me that I had spoken face to face with the veritable author of a printed book. The literary man now evinced a great kindness for me, and I ventured to inquire which way he was traveling. Oh, said he. I keep company with this old gentleman here, and we are moving now toward the camp meeting at Stamford. He then explained to me that for the present season he had rented a corner of the wagon as a bookstore, which, as he wittily observed, was a true circulating library, since there were few parts of the country where it had not gone its rounds. I approved of the plan exceedingly and began to sum up within my mind the many uncommon felicities in the life of a book peddler, especially when his character resembled that of an individual before me. At a high rate was to be reckoned the daily and hourly enjoyment of such interviews as the present, in which he seized upon the admiration of a passing stranger and made him aware that a man of literary taste and even of literary achievement was traveling the country in a showman's wagon. A more valuable, yet not infrequent triumph might be one in his conversations with some elderly clergyman, long vegetating in a rocky, woody, watery back-settlement of New England, who has recruited his library from the peddler stock of sermons, would exhort him to seek a college education and become the first scholar in his class. Sweeter and prouder yet would be his sensations when, talking poetry while he sold spelling books, he should charm the mind and happily touch the heart of a fair country schoolmistress, herself an unhonored poetess, aware of blue stockings, which none but himself took pains to look at. But the scene of this completest glory would be when the wagon had halted the night and his stock of books was transferred to some crowded bar room. Then, would he recommend to the multifarious company, whether the traveler from the city, or teamster from the hills, or neighboring squire, or the landlord himself, or the loudish hustler, work suited to each particular taste and capacity, proving, all the while, by acute criticism and profound remark, that the lore in his books was even exceeded that, in his own brain. Thus happily would he traverse the land, sometimes a herald before the march of mine, sometimes walking arm in arm with awful literature, and reaping everywhere a harvest of real and sensible popularity which the secluded bookworms by whose toil he lived could never hope for. If ever I meddle with literature, thought I, fixing myself in an adamantine resolution, it shall be as a traveling bookseller. Though it was still mid-afternoon, the air had now grown dark about us, and a few drops of rain came down upon the roof of our vehicle, pattering like the feet of birds that had flown thither to rest. A sound of pleasant voices made us listen, and there soon appeared halfway up the ladder the pretty person of a young damsel whose rosy face was so cheerful that even amid the gloomy light it seemed as if the sunbeams were peeping under her bonnet. We next saw the dark and handsome features of a young man who, with easier gallantry than might have been expected in the heart of Yankee land, was assisting her into the wagon. It became immediately evident to us, when the two strangers stood within the door, that they were of a profession kindred to those of my companions, and I was delighted with the more than hospitable, the even paternal kindness, of the old showman's manner as he welcomed them, while the man of literature hastened to lead the merry girl to a seat on the long bench. You are housed, but just in time, my young friends, said the master of the wagon. The sky would have been down upon you within five minutes. The young man's reply marked him as a foreigner, not by any variation from the idiom and accent of good English, but because he spoke with more caution and accuracy than if perfectly familiar with the language. We knew that a shower was hanging over us, said he, and consulted whether it were best to enter the house on the top of yonder hill, but seeing your wagon on the road. We agreed to come thither, interrupted the girl with a smile, because we should be more at home in a wandering house like this. I meanwhile, with many a wild and undetermined fantasy, was narrowly inspecting those two doves that had flown into our ark. The young man, tall and agile and athletic, wore a mass of black shining curls clustering round a dark and vivacious countenance, which, if it had not greater expression, was at least more active and attracted readier notice than the quiet faces of our countrymen. At his first appearance, he had been laden with a neat mahogany box of about two feet square, but very light in proportion to its size which he had immediately unstrapped from his shoulders and deposited on the floor of the wagon. The girl had nearly as fair a complexion as our own beauties, and a brighter one than most of them. The lightness of her figure, which seemed calculated to traverse the world without weariness, suited well with the glowing cheerfulness of her face and of her gay attire, combining the rainbow hues of crimson, green, and a deep orange, was as proper to her lightsome aspect as if she had been born in it. The gay stranger was appropriately burdened with that mirth-inspiring instrument, the fiddle, which her companion took from her hands, and shortly began the process of tuning. Neither of us, the previous company of the wagon, needed to inquire their trade this could be no mystery to frequenters of brigade musters ordinations, cattle shows, commencements, and other festal meetings in our sober land and there is a dear friend of mine who will smile when this page recalls to his memory a chivalrous deed performed by us in rescuing the show box of such a couple from a mob of great double-fisted countrymen come, said I to the damsel of gay attire Shall we visit all the wonders of the world together? She understood the metaphor at once, though indeed it would not have much troubled me if she had assented to the literal meaning of my words. The mahogany box was placed in a proper position, and I peeped in through its small round magnifying window while the girl sat by my side and gave short descriptive sketches as one after another the pictures were unfolded to my view. We visited together, at least our imaginations did, full many a famous city in the streets of which I had long yearned to tread. Once, I remember, we were in the harbor of Barcelona, gazing townward. Next, she bore me through the air to Sicily, and bade me look up at blazing Etna. Then we took a wing to Venice, and sat in a gondola beneath the arch of Rialto. And anon, she set me down among the thronged spectators at the coronation of Napoleon. But there was one scene, its locality she could not tell, which charmed my attention longer than all the gorgeous palaces and churches, because the fancy haunted me that I myself the preceding summer had beheld just such a humble meeting-house, in just such a pine-surrounded nook, among our own green mountains. All these pictures were tolerably executed, though far inferior to the girl's touches of description. Nor was it easy to comprehend how in so few sentences, and these, I supposed, in a language foreign to her, she contrived to present an airy copy of each varied scene, When we had traveled through the vast extent of the mahogany box, I looked into my guide's face. Where are you going, my pretty maid, inquired I, in the words of an old song. Ah, said the gay damsel, you might as well ask where the summer wind is going. We are wanderers here and there and everywhere. Wherever there is mirth, our merry hearts are drawn to it. Today, indeed, the people have told us of a great frolic and festival in these parts, so perhaps we may be needed of what you call the camp meeting at Stamford. Then, in my happy youth, and while her pleasant voice yet sounded in my ears, I sighed, for none but myself, I thought, should have been her companion in a life which seemed to realize my old wild fancies, cherished all through visionary boyhood to that hour. To these two strangers, the world was in its golden age. Not that, indeed, it was less dark and sad than ever, but because its weariness and sorrow had no community with their ethereal nature. Wherever they might appear in their pilgrimage of bliss, youth would echo back their gladness, care-stricken maturity would rest a moment from its toil, and age Tottering among the graves, would smile in withered joy for their sakes. The lonely cot, the narrow and gloomy street, the somber shade would catch a passing gleam like that now shining on ourselves as these bright spirits wandered by. Blessed pair, whose happy home was throughout all the earth, I looked at my shoulders and thought them broad enough to sustain those pictured towns and mountains. Mine, too, was an elastic foot as tireless as the wing of a bird of paradise. Mine was then an untroubled heart, that would have gone singing on its delightful way. O maiden, said I aloud, why did you not come hither alone? While the merry girl and myself were busy with the show box." The unceasing rain had driven another wayfarer into the wagon. He seemed pretty nearly of the old showman's age, but much smaller, leaner, and more withered than he, and less respectably clad in a patched suit of gray. Withal, he had a thin, shrewd countenance and a pair of diminutive gray eyes, which peeped rather too neely out of their puckered sockets. This old fellow had been joking with the showman in a manner which intimated previous acquaintance, but perceiving that the damsel and I had terminated our affairs, he drew forth a folded document and presented it to me. As I had anticipated, it proved to be circular, written in a very fair and legible hand and signed by several distinguished gentlemen whom I had never heard of stating that the bear had encountered every variety of misfortune and recommending him to the notice of all charitable people. Previous disbursements had left me no more than a five-dollar bill, out of which, however, I offered to make the beggar a donation, provided he would give me change for it. The object of my beneficence looked keenly in my face, and discerned that I had none of that abominable spirit, characteristic, though it may be, of a full-blooded Yankee, which takes pleasure in detecting every little harmless piece of knavery. Why, perhaps, said the ragged old mendicant, if the bank is in good standing, I can't say, but I may have enough about me to change your bill. It is a bill of the Suffolk Bank, said I, and better than the specie. As the beggar had nothing to object, he now produced a small, buff leather bag tied up carefully with a shoestring. When this was open, there appeared a very comfortable treasure of silver coins of all sorts and sizes, and I even fancy that I saw gleaming among them the golden plumage of that rare bird in our currency, the American Eagle. in this precious heap was my bank note deposited, the rate of exchange being considerably against me. His wants being thus relieved, the destitute man pulled out of his pocket an old pack of greasy cards, which had probably contributed to fill the buff leather bag in more ways than one. Come, said he, I spy a rare fortune in your face, and for twenty-five cents more, I'll tell you what it is. I never refused to take a glimpse into futurity. So, after shuffling the cards, and when the fair damsel had cut them, I dealt a portion to the prophetic beggar. Like others of his profession, before predicting the shadowy events that were moving on to meet me, he gave proof of his preternatural science by describing scenes through which I had already passed. Here let me have credit for a sober fact. When the old man had read a page in his book of fate, he bent his keen grey eyes on mine, and proceeded to relate in all its minute particulars what was then the most singular event of my life. It was one which I had no purpose to disclose till the general unfolding of all secrets, nor would it be a much stranger distance of inscrutable knowledge or fortunate conjecture if the beggar were to meet me in the street today and repeat word for word the page which I have here written. The fortune teller, after predicting a destiny which time seems loth to make good, put up his cards, secreted his treasure bag, and began to converse with the other occupants of the wagon. Well, old friend, said the showman, you have not yet told us which way your face has turned this afternoon. I am taking a trip northward, this warm weather, replied the conjurer, across the Connecticut first, and then up through Vermont, and maybe into Canada before the fall. But I must stop and see the breaking up of the camp meeting at Stamford. I began to think that all the vagrants in New England were converging to the camp meeting and had made this wagon their rendezvous by the way. The showman now proposed that when the shower was over they should pursue the road to Stamford together, it being sometimes the policy of these people to form a sort of league and confederacy. And the young lady too observed the gallant Bibliopolis Bowling to her profoundly, and this foreign gentleman, as I understand, are a jaunt of pleasure to the same spot. It would add incalculably to my own enjoyment, and I presume, too, that of my colleague and his friend, if they could be prevailed upon to join our party. This arrangement met with approbation on all hands. Nor were any of those concerned more sensible of its advantages than myself, who had no title to be included in it. Having already satisfied myself to the several modes in which the four others attained felicity, I next set my mind to work to discover what enjoyments were peculiar to the old straggler, as the people of the country would have termed the wandering mendicant and prophet. as he pretended to familiarity with the devil, so I fancied that he was fitted to pursue and take delight in his way of life by possessing some of the mental and moral characteristics, the lighter and more comic ones of the devil in popular stories. Among them might be reckoned the love of deception for its own sake, a shrewd eye and keen relish for human weakness and ridiculous infirmity, and the talent of petty fraud. Thus to this old man there would be pleasure even in the consciousness, so insupportable by some minds that his whole life was a cheat upon the world, and that, so far as he was concerned with the public, his little cunning had the upper hand of its united wisdom. Every day would furnish him with a succession of minute and pungent triumphs, as when, for instance, his importunity wrung a pittance out of the heart of a miser, or when my silly good-natured transferred a part of my slender purse to his plump leather bag, or when some ostentatious gentleman should throw a coin to the ragged beggar who was richer than himself, or when, Though he would not always be so decidedly diabolical, his pretended want should make him a sharer in the scanty living of real indigence. And then, what an inexhaustible field of enjoyment, both as enabling him to discern such folly and achieve such quantities of minor mischief, was opened to sneering spirit by his pretensions of prophetic knowledge. All this was a sort of happiness, which I could conceive of, though I had little sympathy with it. Perhaps, had I been inclined to admit it, I might have found that the roving life was more proper to him than to either of his companions. For Satan, to whom I had compared the poor man, was delighted, ever since the time of Job in wandering up and down upon the earth. And, indeed... A crafty disposition which operates not in deep laid plans, but in disconnected tricks, could not have an adequate scope unless naturally impelled to a continual change of scene and society. My reflections were here interrupted. Another visitor, exclaimed the old showman. The door of the wagon had been closed against the tempest which is roaring and blustering with prodigious fury and commotion and beating violently against our shelter, as if it had claimed all the homeless people for its lawful prey, while we, caring little for the displeasure of the elements, sat comfortably talking. There was now an attempt at opening the door, succeeded by a voice uttering some strange unintelligible gibberish which my companions mistook for Greek and I suspected to be thieves' Latin. However, the showman stepped forward and gave admittance to a figure which made me imagine either that our wagon had rolled back 200 years into past ages, or that the forest and its old inhabitants had sprung up around us by enchantment. It was an Indian, armed with a bow and arrow. His dress was a sort of cap adorned with a single feather of some wild bird, and a frock of blue cotton girdon tied around him. On his breast, like orders of knighthood, hung a crescent and circle, and other ornaments of silver, while a small crucifix betokened that our father the Pope had interposed between the Indian and the great spirit whom he had worshipped. The son of the wilderness and pilgrim of the storm took his place silently in the midst of us, When the first surprise was over, I rightly conjectured him to be one of the Penobscot tribe, parties of which I had often seen in their summer excursions down our eastern rivers. There they paddle their birch canoes among the coasting schooners, and build their wigwam beside some roaring mill dam, and drive a little trade in basket work where their fathers hunted deer Our new visitor was probably wandering through the country toward Boston, subsisting on the careless charity of people while he turned his archery and profitable account by shooting at scents which were to be the prize of a successful aim. The Indian had not long been seated ere Our married damsel sought to draw him into conversation. She, indeed, seemed all made up of sunshine in the month of May for there was nothing so dark and dismal that her pleasant mind could not cast a glow over it. And the wild man, like a fir tree in his native forest, soon began to brighten into a sort of somber cheerfulness. At length she inquired whether his journey had any particular end or purpose. I go shoot at the camp meeting at Stamford, replied the Indian. And here are five more, said the girl all aiming at the camp meeting too. You should be one of us, where we travel with light hearts, and as for me, I sing merry songs and tell merry tales and am full of merry thoughts, and I dance merrily along the road so that there is never any sadness among them that keep me company. But oh, you would find it very dull indeed to go all the way to Stamford alone, My ideas of aboriginal character led me to fear that the man would prefer his own solitary musings to the gay society thus offered him. On the contrary, the girl's proposal met with immediate acceptance and seemed to animate him with a misty expectation of enjoyment. I now gave myself up a, a course of thought which, whether it flowed naturally from this combination of events or was drawn forth by a wayward fancy, caused my mind to thrill as if I were listening to deep music. I saw mankind in this weary old age of the world, either enduring a sluggish existence amid the smoke and dust of cities, or, if they breathed the purer air, still lying down at night with no hope but to wear out tomorrow, and all the tomorrows which make up life, among the same dull scenes and in the same wretched toil that had darkened the sunshine of today. But there were some, full of the primeval instinct, who preserved the freshness of youth to their latest years by the continual excitement of new objects, new pursuits, and new associates, and cared little, though their birthplace might have been here in New England, if the graves should close over them in Central Asia. Fate was summoning a parliament of these free spirits, unconscious of the pulse which directed them to a common center. They had come thither from far and near. And last of all appeared the representatives of those mighty vagrants who had chased the deer during thousands of years and were chasing it now in the spirit land. Wandering down through the waste of ages, the woods had vanished around his path his arm had lost somewhat of its strength, and his foot of its fleetness, his mien of its wild regality, his heart and mind of their virtue and force, but here untamable to the routine of artificial life, roving along now, the dusty road, as of old over the forest leaves, here he was still. Well, said the old showman, in the midst of my meditations, Here is an honest company of us. One, two, three, four, five, six. All going to the camp meeting at Stamford. Now, hoping no offense, I should like to know where this young gentleman may be going. I started. How came I among these wanderers? The free mind that preferred its own folly to another's wisdom, the open spirit that founded companions everywhere. Above all, the restless impulse that had so often made me wretched in the midst of enjoyments, these were my claims to be of their society. My friends, cried I, stepping into the center of the wagon, I am going with you to the camp meeting at Stamford. But in what capacity, asked the old showman, after a moment's silence. All of us can get our bread here in some creditable way. Every honest man should have his livelihood. You, sir, as I take it, are a mere strolling gentleman. I proceeded to inform the company that when nature gave me a propensity to their way of life, she had not left me altogether destitute of qualifications for it though I could not deny that my talent was less respectable and might be less profitable than the meanest of theirs. My design, in short, was to imitate the storytellers of whom Eastern travelers have told us and become an itinerant novelist, reciting my own extemporaneous fictions to such audiences as I could collect. Either this, said I, is my vocation, or I have been born in vain. The fortune-teller, with a sly wink to the company, proposed to take me as an apprentice to one or other of his professions, either of which undoubtedly would have given full scope to whatever inventive talent I might possess. The Bibliopolis spoke a few words in opposition to my plan, influenced partly, I suspect, by the jealousy of authorship and partly by an apprehension that the viva voce practice would become general among novelists, to the infinite detriment of the book trade. Dreading a rejection, I solicited the interest of the married damsel. Mirth, cried I, most aptly appropriating the words of Lealgro, to thee I sue. Mirth, admit me of thy crew. Let us indulge the poor you, said Mirth, with a kindness which made me love her dearly, though I was no such coxcomb as to misinterpret her motives. I have espied much promise in them. True, a shadow sometimes flits across his brow, but the sunshine is sure to follow in the moment. He is never guilty of a sad thought, but a merry one is twin born with it. We will take him with us and you shall see that he will set us all laughing before we reach the camp meeting at Stanford her voice silenced the scruples of the rest and gained me admittance into the league according to the terms of which without a community of goods or profits we were to lend each other all the aid and avert all the harm that might be in our power a marvelous jollity entered into the whole tribe of us, manifesting itself characteristically in each individual. The old showman, sitting down to his barrel organ, stirred up the souls of the pygmy people with one of the quickest tunes in the music book. Tailors, blacksmiths, gentlemen and ladies all seemed to share in spirit of the occasion, and the Mary Andrew played his part more facetiously than ever nodding and winking particularly at me. The young foreigner flourished his fiddle bow with the master's hand and gave an inspiring echo to the showman's melody. The bookish man and the married damsel started up simultaneously to dance, the former enacting the double shuffle in a style which everybody must have witnessed, your election week was blotted out of time, while the girl... Setting her arms akimbo with both hands at her slim waist displayed such light rapidity of foot and harmony of varying attitude and motion that I could not conceive how she was ever to stop, imagining at the moment that nature had made her, as the old showman had made his puppets for no earthly purpose but to dance jigs. The Indian bellowed forth a succession of the most hideous outcries, somewhat affrighting us till we interpreted them as the war song with which, in imitation of his ancestors, he was professing the assault on Stamford. The conjurer, meanwhile, sat demurely in a corner extracting a sly enjoyment from the whole scene, and, like the facetious Mary Andrew, directing his queer glance particularly at me. As for myself, with great exhilaration of fancy, I began to arrange the color of the incidents of a tale wherewith I proposed to amuse an audience that very evening, for I saw that my associates were a little ashamed of me and that no time was to be lost in obtaining a public acknowledgement of my abilities. Come, fellow laborers, at last said the old showman, whom we had elected president. The shower is over, and we must be doing our duty by these poor souls at Stamford. We'll come among them in procession, with music and dancing, cried the merry damsel. Accordingly, for it must be understood that our pilgrimage was to be performed on foot, we sallied joyously out of the wagon, each of us, even the old gentleman in his white top boots giving a great skip as we came down the ladder. Above our heads there was such a glory of sunshine and splendor of clouds, and such brightness of verdure below, that as I modestly remarked at the time, nature seemed to have washed her face and put on the best of her jewelry in a fresh green gown in honor of our confederation. Casting our eyes northward, we beheld a horseman approaching leisurely and splashing through the little puddle on the Stamford Road. Onward he came, sticking up in his saddle with rigid perpendicularity, a tall, thin figure in rusty black, whom the showman and the conjurer shortly recognized to be what his aspect sufficiently indicated, a traveling preacher of great fame among the Methodists. What puzzled us, was the fact that his face appeared turned from, instead of to, the camp meeting at Stanford. However, as this new votary of the wandering life drew nearer to the little green space where the post and our wagon were situated, my six fellow vagabonds and myself rushed forward and surrounded him, crying out with united voices. What news? What news from the camp meeting at Stanford? The missionary looked down in surprise at us a singular knot of people as could have been selected from all his heterogeneous auditors. Indeed, considering that we all might be classified under the general head of Vagabond, there was great diversity of character among the grave old showman, the sly, the prophetic beggar, the fiddling foreigner and his married damsel, the smart bibliopolist and the somber Indian and in myself, the itinerant novelist, a slender youth of eighteen. I even fancied that a smile was endeavoring to disturb the iron gravity of the preacher's mouth. Good people, answered he. The camp meeting is broke up. So saying, the Methodist minister switched his steed and rode westward our union being thus nullified by the removal of its object, we were sundered at once to the four winds of heaven. The fortune teller, giving a nod to all and a peculiar wink to me, departed on his northern tour, chuckling within himself as he took the Stamford Road. The old showman and his literary coadjutor were already tackling their horses to the wagon, with a design to peregrinate southwest along the seacoast. The foreigner and the married damsel took their laughing leave and pursued the eastern road, which I had that day trodden. As they passed away, the young man played a lively strain and the girl's happy spirit broke into a dance, and thus dissolving, as it were, into sunbeams and gay music that pleasant pair departed from my view. Finally, with a pensive shadow thrown across my mind, yet emulous of the light philosophy of my late companions, I joined myself to the Penobscot Indian and set forth toward the distant city.